Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, graduate researcher at Concordia University, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop right into things, I'm just going to whet your appetite super quickly by telling you some of the things you can expect to hear in today's episode. We're going to be covering hamburgers and complexity, the practicality crisis. We're going to have fiery debates on ego depletion and self-control, cognitive effort and the effort paradox, what your pupils tell us about how hard you're thinking, and the importance of making progress. Here we go. If something can be said, it's worth saying simply. You know, when you know a little bit about a topic, you feel like you know everything about it, but then the more you learn about it, the more you realize you don't know. Every day we face important decisions. Nowadays, especially, those decisions can range from making life or death choices to deciding whether or not to rewatch The Office again. A common feature to these decisions is that they all require the exertion of some degree of cognitive effort. That's what our guest today is focusing on in his research. That guest is none other than Sean Devine, and he's interested in answering questions like, when and why do we think really hard about some problems, but not others? How does the intensity of our thinking about a decision affect the decision itself? And what features about a situation or ourselves make it so that we think harder before making a decision? Sean's research at Concordia has focused on the features about ourselves part, focusing on how aging affects how we make decisions and spend cognitive effort, specifically in the context of judgments about concepts. So far, he has found that older adults think harder about some choices than younger adults, which affects how they make decisions. The next step Sean's research is to focus on features of the situation and how they affect how effort is perceived to begin with. In particular, he wants to look into how progressing through a decision-making process affects how people perceive cognitive effort. So I've definitely said plenty so far. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome on Sean Devine to the podcast. Sean, welcome. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is really cool. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have uh, started this, this little initiative here. Really, it's for the express goal, as I mentioned, of spreading knowledge, but also I will uh, be gaining knowledge myself by proxy, by being the intermediary. So looking forward to that. Um, the general idea that I want to try and adhere to is to keep things super, super simple. So it's really easy to get carried away as a graduate student, to dive really deep into your research and to develop the jargon that works inside your very, very small field. So we're gonna keep this as accessible as possible. And I will definitely call you out if I find things are getting a little too out there and I'll try and pull back the conversation. So feel free to let it go however it goes, um, but we'll try and continually pull back to, to this uh, simpler way of explaining things. Sounds so, good to me, simple is better. Absolutely. So the first thing, I, I guess, uh, maybe just in, in a few words, if there's anything that I missed in that introduction, uh, if there's anything incorrect that I said, maybe you could correct me, or maybe uh, I know that you just actually did your master's defense, so congratulations on that. Uh, you said you've actually you. officially gotten your master's degree. 
yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's true. I think you did a good job at the introduction. Um, the uh, yeah, yeah. So so I study how people try and think hard about things. It's a bit ironic because I try not to think too hard about things myself. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think I think you hit it right. Thank you for the congratulations. Um, it was it was a fun thing doing a master's, especially doing it in like a short time, like I did in a year. So. So yeah, hopefully maybe we can talk about that as we get going too. But I'll, absolutely, I'll let you I thought it was that. so. So when we first met in, uh, I guess it must have been like Central Topics, uh, some introductory uh, grad course, and I had either heard someone mention you were doing it in a year, or you had maybe yourself mentioned it. I thought, wow, that's crazy, because now I'm about eight months into my master's, and I think only in February I realized what what I wanted my thesis to actually be. So the level of preparation you must have needed going into it must have been pretty high. Like when you were in your undergrad, were you doing this kind of research already? Yeah, I, I sort of um, I sort of had a big shift, which is something that I've spoken about before with some other people. But when I was in my undergrad, I was, I was interested in going into clinical psychology. Okay. And um, I, yeah, I was like excited about it. And uh, then like partway through the application process, and like actually realizing that it could be like a reality, I was like, this is not for me in the end. So I did sort of did a 180 and uh, took a year as like a research coordinator in the, in the lab that I'm currently in, but uh, about to switch out of. Which lab and is that? That's uh, Ben Eppinger's lab, Lifespan Decision Making Lab. Yeah. Right. And yeah, during that year, I had the chance to see what it would be like to actually just like focus headfirst on research and whether that was something that I would want to maybe... Uh, pursue in the long run and it gave me the opportunity to really like, get my feet wet and meet a lot of different people in different fields and uh, re read a lot of stuff that was mainly what it gave me the chance to do being like, on a research coordinator's payroll and sort of having the flexibility of not having as much homework and stuff gave me a chance just to like really soak up the field and uh, that that was really cool because it, it gave me the opportunity to prep prepare like you said so and, when you uh, sat down with Dr. Eppinger when you were first joining the lab, did he basically say, go get your feet wet? Or was there more guidance than that? Because that does sound like the dream. Go, go read a bunch of stuff and tell me what happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, Ben's uh, like a very good supervisor um, in that he's, he's very uh, into the idea of letting people sort of get their own projects and sort of like dive into it themselves and learn. But I mean, like there was still like there was still things I had to do in the the day to day of the lab, obviously. But uh, no, I think I think that's that's a good tack for for special especially younger researchers to get into the habit of doing. It's just it's really easy to sort of like dive into a big project in in such like a vast uh, area of research without like having done all the prerequisite reading and like really sort of thinking about your your topic all the way through. So. It's nice when you when you have the opportunity to have that year to really like think about what you're doing, and that was the point of that year for me was to think like, what am I going to do with my life? So, okay, that's also nice to Dr. Eppinger to say, okay, here, here, Sean, you could take the next year of your life to decide what you want to do with the rest of it. Uh, yeah, on, yeah, on my dime. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I mean, I was helping out too. I was doing research, and like we have a, a manuscript that's that's getting there now. That's based on that year of work too. Uh, okay. So it wasn't for naught. But it, it gave me the chance to yeah, like think about what I was doing and, and I was lucky in that uh, it, it set me up to do that master's in a year. So that's interesting that you, you started in this lab before your graduate degree and then you just continued in it. Um, that sounds like it would be an enticing route to take for current undergraduates who I hope are listening to this podcast right now. If you are, welcome. 
Um, so how was, how was the transition then between being in the same lab pre-grad and then after getting into the program? Was it a smooth transition or was it kind of like, okay, now you're going to stop what you were doing and then pick up somewhere else completely? That's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on undergrads, especially as, as I was one of them at one point, to, to sort of do like the usual route, to, to go through your undergrad and then like in your last, say, honors or specialization year or whatever, apply to grad school, do all like the work and uh, pay all the fees and maybe do the GREs or whatever, and then you get in and then you just keep going. But I, I don't know about you, but a lot of the people say that, that we met in our cohort and just in general, like not a lot of people actually follow that route. Like there's a lot of variability in uh, where people come from and how they got to where they're at. And so for me, the idea of, you know, if you can, if you can swing it, doing your undergrad and then taking like a breathing year, if you're uh, where you can work in a lab, if that's what you're interested in doing was super beneficial because my transition into, uh, into the master's degree was really smooth, actually. I mean, I was at the same university. I knew a lot of the people. I sort of knew where to go if I had a question. So it sort of felt like it was business as usual, plus I had to sit in a classroom for a couple of hours a week. Right, it's true. We do have to do those classes. Now that we've kind of talked about it a little bit, it seems like even though you did your master's degree in one year, and this is not to take anything away from you, but you did the master's in a year, but you had also had a full year in that lab to gain a certain level of comfort in the environment, like you're saying, you know, it's just kind of business as usual. So I think that, as you're saying, must have definitely had a huge impact on the transition being smoother. It isn't that you actually started at one school, moved to another, starting in a master's right away, but you had the time to take off of like pure school by doing the research in the lab. And then you also got to get your feet wet pre-grad in, in order to kind of get your bearings a little bit. So I, I think yeah. that's definitely a good option. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there, was, there was all this stuff, even in like the, the like research, research going on right now about like how, to what degree, uh, ex just expertise, like sort of unsaid implicit expertise affects like how you do research and, uh, and like what kind of studies you design and what kind of results you get out. And like, so just, just like this idea of being in it, I guess, uh, affects what you get out of it. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, having that year to sort of be in it to start with sort of accelerates and, and just makes the process a lot smoother. Um, yeah, and obviously not having to like switch universities, switch commutes, switch cities, switch housing, whatever. Right, those are all added stresses for sure, which lots of, lots of students do go through for sure. I have friends of my own, people who I know uh, in my extended network who have gone abroad to Oxford. You know, they were at McGill for their undergrad and they're out in Europe. And it's a totally different world you need to get accustomed to. So I would imagine that adds, that adds a considerable amount of additional stress. How did you decide which lab you were going to spend your, your, your gap year in? Did someone tell you about the Eppinger lab or like how did that uh, come together? That's a good question. Well, I'd, I'd had been as a professor for one class and it was, in a, it was in a topic I was interested, I was always interested in, but because I had this sort of like admittedly narrow focus on the, like the clinical side of things at the time, I didn't think like it would intersect very well. This like uh, cognition decision-making stuff. Obviously now I realize there are like very good intersections in the field, but I didn't know it when I was thinking about it. Um, so I think it was like a combination of like me wanting to do something I was always interested in studying uh, with someone who I, I already knew or I, who I felt had like a good grasp on the subject having had him as a professor before. And who I also, I just felt like I, I got along with pretty okay. 
Right. Okay. So you already had that relationship background and then building on that in terms of developing more of like the business side of, or the, the like research side of things, that was just a smooth transition. Yeah, more or less. Though so I should say like for if the, the, the goal or one of the goals of this conversation is also to like reach out to undergrads who might be listening. Like it's worth also just cold calling. Like I had been as a professor, but you know, more or less the, the like what came out of it the development of it was was me like just sending an email um and scheduling a meeting and talking and how many I, I people, people did you sorry how many people did you reach out to i think he was the first person i sent an email to and he answered so <laughs> I got and then you, but i would yeah go ahead I, okay so you you reached out to dr effinger and then you had a meeting with him and then you just basically stopped your search right there yeah it was a good meeting um and I mean, I knew I was interested in the topic. I think it's important to be interested in, in the things, uh, like if you're emailing people, it's important to be interested in the things they're studying. It just makes the conversation smoother. But by and large, I think there's like a big phobia of thinking like professors or, or researchers or whatever are, are like, or even grad students are like really far out. Like they're just on like another world and like you emailing them is somehow an imposition on them, like taking up all their time. And maybe, maybe sometimes it is. But most of the time it's not. Uh, and I think that if you're interested and you genuinely want to help out and learn, like most people are receptive to that. I would be receptive to that. Right. No, that's a really good point. Definitely there's there should be no no element of fear there. And uh, when I was talking with uh, Alexandra Chisholm, she was also saying how when she was doing, uh, at the end of your first PhD, uh, the first year of your PhD, you have to do, almost, it isn't really a, a defense, but it's kind of like a preliminary uh, check to make sure that you're on on route, you know, at the right pace or whatnot. And she was saying how um, her supervisor asked her a few really, really difficult questions she could not answer. And they were questions that, that Alexandra said she couldn't even have thought of on her own. They were just such, like so high level. And so mm -hmm. coming to the realization that even as a graduate student, as a PhD, uh, you still have so much to learn is humbling. And I, I think that exists at every level. Like guaranteed, I'm not there yet, but guaranteed there are, there are assistant and associate professors who don't think the way they're going to think when they're full professors or when they become emeritus or, or later in their careers, there's always this development of critical thinking skills. And there's yeah, no yeah. cut off. I agree. I think there's like, a, if you could plot it out, there'd be this sort of like dip where, um, you know, when you know a little bit about a topic, you feel like you know everything about it. But then mm -hmm. the more you learn about it, the more you realize you don't know anything. And there's just so much. There's just, I mean, it, science as a process is collaborative because there's just too much information for one or two people to, to hold in their head. Mm -hmm. What's your general uh, perception feeling about the current state of science in that it's become uh, individuals become hyper-focused in sub sub fields? That's a, you can give a long answer to that as I'm sure you're aware. Um, yes. But uh, Try to break it down, maybe break it down into like, do you think it is a, it is a net negative or net positive thing? that science is currently tending towards like continuous bifurcation or like, you know, segmentation uh, into, into more like higher specificity? Well, I can say, I mean, I could say it has pros and cons. I mean, for one, the, the heightened specificity like obviously has some benefits and that people know very much about a very specific thing, um, which is, which at least makes it so uh, in theory, in theory, very specific hypotheses can be tested and you can get out very specific answers. Whereas if you have, say, like at the broad, you know, you could say at the broadest level, 
you could have some hypothesis like A is better than B or A will do something than B. And you don't really have an understanding of, of how that works. You just know one thing is, is bigger or smaller or better than another. Um, so, so the specificity helps in answering specific questions. Now, the thing is whether those questions are actually interesting or useful is, is maybe a, a different question. I mean, certainly this like heightened specificity has led to less accessibility. It's become really difficult to read uh, scientific articles, especially in sub subfields. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's sort of the, one of the points of this podcast is to make it more accessible. And we have a journal at Concordia that's uh, aiming specifically to make like research at Concordia accessible. Quick plug um, there, which, uh, which journal is this? Just so that our yeah. listeners know. Yeah, so that's the Concordia Journal of Accessible Psychology, or CJAP for, for short. And this is, this is for all, all levels of students to contribute to, or is this specifically undergrad? Yeah, so um, graduate students have the opportunity to learn about the editorial and review process. Um, so they can review things, they can re review articles that come in, or they can be an editor and recruit other reviewers and, and sort of relay information between them to uh, authors and authors are usually uh, undergraduate students um, submitting research that they've heard of or that they've been doing maybe in their honors thesis or honors year and uh, relaying in like an, ex uh, an accessible way so that people can understand it. It's not super jargony. It's just like sort of relaying that information in a, in a simple enough to understand way. What kind of writer are you? Do you think you fit into the more of the jargony side of things or are you are you hyper aware of the fact that that contributes to this thing we just discussed, which is, you know, this, this uh, difficulty of reading hyper-specific papers. I think I aim for, for more simple than more complicated. There's probably a balance to be struck there, but if something can be said, it's worth saying simply, I think. And it's easy to get lost in, like, especially when your topic's really complicated, it's easy to get lost in the jargon and not really even know what you're saying. Um, so yeah, I definitely aim for the simplicity. Because at the end of the day, like what we're trying to do is, is understand some phenomenon in theory, at least that's how I see it, where you know, if we have some, some thing, we have the scientific method so that we can get a better understanding of how it works and, and whether it works, maybe if that's the question. But if you're writing in such a way that's so complicated that the only person really understanding it is you, and maybe even you don't understand it as well, then it's not right. as, as useful as it could be. Do you think there's there's some kind of a barrier though, or some some threshold that a phenomenon or a concept reaches whereby it is so complex that if you attempt to explain something in a simple way, you're going to gloss over very important details of that complexity and actually wrongly uh, describe or communicate what's actually happening, like there has to be some loss of information between explaining something in a complex way versus simple. Is there always a way to explain something in a simple way? What do you think? Hmm. I mean, I guess I have two answers to that. I mean, one is the type of questions that we're asking. I mean, there are certainly complex questions and complex answers that exist. There's no doubt about that. But um, just as like a way to mitigate the quantity of, of that complexity, th there was a paper that came out called, um, the practicality crisis in psychology and how a lot of research just isn't practical anymore. And so one thing that the author of that uh, makes the point that like practicality means uh, that it's not very like useful for say society at large or like a specific group or, or something like that. Like it's mm -hmm. sort of divorced from how you would apply it. Um, and, and I guess maybe one of the reasons that might be sort of a 
one of the factors that influence why things have gone so complicated is that if you have a vested interest in understanding something, like you were doing some sort of applied work and you wanted to understand whether, um, say, some therapy helped some group improve on their symptoms, um, it, you might not have to communicate that in a simple way. You could be nuanced in your answer, but if it's practical, people sort of have something to grab onto that helps them along the way understand it. But if it's some topic that's like very abstract, very theoretical, it's not that that's not necessarily important, but that the more divorced it is from anything you could imagine applying it to, the, maybe the harder it is to understand. And then the other point I would say is that while like nuance and complexity is important, I think a lot of researchers also use heuristics themselves to understand a phenomenon. Like they don't, they don't like in their head, they don't necessarily hold all the complex nuances at once. Like they sort of have some basic, like you said, uh, loose or like that misses, that sort of the edges are sanded off. So it's not as complicated uh, idea in their head. And then relaying that already, just say in like an article or something as like a general rough and ready idea and then adding the nuance could be useful. But I, I feel like a lot of, a lot of, people sort of go right away with the super complicated stuff and it makes it hard to understand what's going on for people maybe just coming to the field or uh, trying to understand it for a first time. I really like that second point actually about, about starting simple. And then if you would like kind of like a menu item, you can just start with a regular hamburger. And if you'd like to make your, your, your hamburger more complex, we can add bacon for an extra charge. Cheese is an additional charge. And then you can keep on adding toppings. And, but you always start, everyone knows what a hamburger is. You bite your hamburger, you know what a hamburger is. But you might not be able to discern the flavors, and the textures as more and more. Maybe I'm pushing this analogy too far. I don't think we could actually just say that research is like a hamburger. But starting simple, I think, does, does, uh, does seem like a good place to start. So yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's a good analogy. And it, it's, I guess it's worth adding the caveat to that, like, not all questions have simple answers either. Like some, some, like you pointed out earlier, some answers are rightfully complicated, but maybe it's just my opinion at this point. But I think there is always a way of sort of grappling with it in a way that you can relay it to people because that's how we think of things too. Like I, I don't think I always hold hyper complex information in my head, even though I have some specialization in my field. They're more like heuristics and general rules of thumb. And then in the process of writing something, you might get more and more specific. So it seems like a bit of a cash 22 then, because of course, on like you just said, you aren't always holding complex information in your mind, but that doesn't mean that there aren't actually very complex processes happening that you're not attuned to. So by being, let's say, a psychology researcher, uh, you, are, you are overtly studying really complex processes that most people aren't consciously aware of on a daily basis. So again, we have to ask, is this important? Well, probably, it just doesn't necessarily feel like it's important because it's either esoteric or very, very specific. So I, I, I think it's definitely an open debate as to, as to the relationship between importance and specificity. You could be talking about CRISPR operating on a specific receptor in your body. I don't know a lot about CRISPR. I don't know if that sentence <laughs> made sense, but that at least to people, especially when things get medical, people get very excited, right? Um, whereas in comparison to something that I study with maybe equal specificity, the the role of the ending of a word in how you can disambiguate it if it appears in an ambiguous context. People might say, okay, Jeremy, I don't really care. Uh, move on, I wanna hear more about CRISPR because I might have cancer later in life and your morphology is not really gonna help me get through that. 
I don't so, think it was a question, actually. I think I just rambled a little bit, but if you want no, to- that's, I mean, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. I mean, I, I think it's important to have diversity in research. Like it's, it's obviously up to the, the reader or maybe the funding agency or something about like what research is important. But uh, my take is it's always good to, to have answers to lots of different questions about life and whatnot. Um, but in terms of like the, the relaying complexity about CRISPR on a specific receptor, I also don't know anything about CRISPR. so. We're in the same boat. But I guess this is also important when we talk about like the shift that uh, psychological science especially is seeing towards this more meta-analytic thinking. Like, yeah, maybe one paper about one specific process on one specific receptor or whatever is super complex and just doesn't really lend itself to simple explanation. But at the meta-analytic level, say if you're just trying to evaluate the efficiency of CRISPR or whatever, that can start to be relayed a little bit more simply. So this is, again, maybe an indication that uh, in science, we need to sort of think more meta-analytically, not rely on like the results or the rhetoric of a specific individual paper, but think about the overall process, whether it's important, how to relay it to people, does it matter type of thing. Who's, whose job is it to relay community or, or to perform the meta-analysis? Is this the job of researchers, the job of uh, journalists, the job of the public? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, probably a little bit. Of, yeah, I think probably a little bit of everything. I mean, there are people obviously who bread and butter is like doing meta analyses on topics that they themselves have researched. So it's not, it's not like a clear cut line. But we also see this, this push now for um, both individual labs to think more meta-analytically. So maybe they'll do one study on a specific thing, but they'll add many replications uh, or many conceptual replications. So they'll, they'll try and publish a multi-study paper that, have, uh, that, answer the, that answers the same question from lots of different ways. Um, and so that way they, they're already sort of doing like a mini meta-analysis of, of this one specific topic and it makes it easier to relay the information to the reader because it's usually treated at the beginning in this high level hamburger way, like you were saying, and throughout the studies, they get into the nitty gritty. But the overall message is, is simpler, I guess. And then, okay. and then there's also this trend for like more, uh, more team science, where you have like these big teams across multiple countries and different labs collaborating to understand like a given phenomenon. There's the, the many labs project is probably the most popular that comes to mind. What's the Many Labs project working on specifically? Is it is it like how is this a thousand researchers or is is, is this twenty? Uh, it's it's so it's not um, as far as I understand it. It's like it's this group of uh, you, you can sort of make a, an application to the Many Labs project yeah. to do a uh, either a replication study or some like I guess you could I guess you could do something new as well, but the ones that have garnered the most attention from me that, that I know of are, the, are these big, large scale replication studies, like 20 or 30 labs, um, all doing the same thing across different labs and different cultures and different contexts and seeing whether some phenomenon actually exists. And they're usually very high level. Like they're not, they're not like, does, does this one specific manipulation work on this one specific opera operationalization? But um, they usually try to answer like, does X exist? or does X work or something like this that. Is, this is the perfect time to transition to asking you 
a question about your research specifically, because all of this talk about okay. massive replication is extremely reminiscent of a presentation you delivered this past year on a phenomenon known as ego depletion. So if yeah. you're so, right, so I'll let you take it away, but you basically, from what I, I understood, you, you, you showed everybody in our class that there is so much, hundreds and hundreds of research papers and replications that have shown that ego depletion, which you'll explain to us kindly, does exist. But there's still this fiery debate as to whether this is actually le legitimate, whether we know what we're actually looking at. And so take it away. Yeah, okay, uh, big question. So Huge. ego depletion, um, I encourage listeners to read about it. It's, it's a super fascinating area of research. Um, but just the, 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 the quick summary, the quick and dirty is mm -hmm. uh, ego depletion is the idea that self-control relies on a central resource such that when you uh, spend that resource, you'll perform worse on tasks that subsequently require it. So for instance, like you might have to control yourself because you're going on a date. Uh, and so you have to like make sure you sit up straight and you, you speak nicely and then to spend all these resources on self-controlling your uh, natural urges to like eat like a pig and just lounge around or whatever. Um, and then you might get home and instead of doing your homework or something, you might just lounge on the couch and watch Netflix because you've spent those self-control resources. So you're not going to be efficient at studying or whatever. So self-control so is not binary then. It isn't like when you fill your car with gas, your car works perfectly fine while there's gas. And the second you run out, then your car stops working. This is more of a gradual decline in your ability to continually self-monitor as you deplete. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of like the gas analogy. If you think of this like central resource as a fuel, and then as you spend the fuel, then you can't spend it on, on something else. But the idea that it's domain general is a central tenet of, uh, of ego depletion, which just is a fancy way of saying that, you know, a, even though a date and studying are very different things, they would rely on the same resource, which is, well, that, that's a whole other topic about what that resource is. Right. But in terms of- um, Is it sodium? The, the, <laughs> it's not sodium, no. Not like sodium um, in, the, in, in like, in like you know, one half of table salt, but sodium is in like the thing that, 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 you know, creates action potentials. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the central resource in ego depletion would be. And one of the reasons I don't know about it is because um, to, to sort of go with the overall narrative, ego depletion was like a big deal, or maybe it is still a big deal. And there was, like you said, all these studies, I think some estimates are like 600 or more empirical studies showing that this thing exists. So they would do some kind of manipulation where they get people to do some task that requires um, self-control in the lab. And then uh, ask them to do some different task after they were depleted, so after they, they spent these, this resource on the first task. And then they'd show that people did worse on the second task if they were depleted compared to if they weren't depleted or if other people weren't depleted, a control group. Um, but despite this, this 600 plus empirical support, there was uh, a couple of there was a couple of meta-analyses that came out, plus a many labs report. So there was a, a group of researchers, many of them who had studied ego depletion in the past, uh, who found that they weren't able to replicate the basic ego depletion finding. And, and so now, since those types of, those types, that type of research came out, there's been this sort of fiery debate about like, does ego depletion exist? Is it all uh, just, 
you know, like old science publication bias? Is it that a bunch of people found null results, but they didn't get published? What's, what's the deal? Like where, where, where does this thing exist or not? And that was one of the, the goals of, of one of these many labs reports was to determine whether, whether it existed or not. Was so, yeah, like, do you have firsthand uh, experience researching that specifically, or had you just looked into it more informally? No, I, I've never done an, an ego depletion study myself, um, but I guess it's worth mentioning that, like, there's, there's this other sort of related area of uh, research that I do study in, which is cognitive effort, which you mentioned in the, in the introduction. It's not to say that they're the same, um, but that they, they are sort of they're sort of similar in that the idea, the, the basic, basic, very uh, charitable idea of ego depletion is that when you, when you do something, you get tired such that you have less energy to spend on a subsequent task. And that seems that, super intuitive. Yeah, and that seems true. I mean, I, I would have trouble saying that that's not true. We've all experienced something like that. You know, you think really, really hard about a problem and you're mentally tired and you don't really want to think about a different one. The thing where ego depletion, I think, kind of shot itself in the foot a little bit uh, if you want to, if you want to think of it that way, mm -hmm. is that it, it's very specific to self-control, and so it, it didn't want to, or yeah, some of some of the researchers in the field didn't want to um, give into this idea that it's like just general fatigue. It's it's very specifically uh, self-control, and I think that that's maybe that's maybe too specific for the type of phenomenon. Uh, that it was trying to describe, which is more what I study, which is that, uh, which makes this assumption that's somewhat similar that our mental resources or our ability to spend cognitive effort uh, is sort of limited in a given time frame. And if you spend it in one place, then you don't have, uh, you're not able to spend it in a different place or something like that. So you, we sort of treat mental effort like a, like a currency. You know, I have $20 and I have to decide what I'm going to spend it on, what's going to bring me the most benefit depending on what I spend it on. So you can imagine it's like having 20 mental bucks and uh, where am I going to spend it on? So, so the research areas are sort of linked in this very general idea that, you know, we're talking about mental effort, we're talking about spending it in one place and not being able to use it in a different place. But in practice and in terms of uh, like the research worlds that they inhabit, they're, they're, a, little bit, they're a little bit different. So in terms of this this ability to self-regulate based on a, the depletion of a resource uh, w there is a phenomenon that exists in memory in, in in terms of memory ability and these there are people who have extremely extremely pretty much perfect autobiographical memory we call them h sams h sam stands for highly superior autobiographical memory. These are people, uh, you could watch videos of this stuff online, kids who remember what clothing they were wearing when they went to what baseball game and who was playing and what the score was. And they remember very, very specific details about their personal life for years and years and years and years and years. It's definitely a blessing and a curse. My question here is, are there outliers in terms of uh, self-regulation where we have these HSAM type uh, people who don't actually run out of this resource and don't experience ego depletion. Does that exist? That's a good question. Um, again, I wouldn't know so much about the ego depletion stuff because yeah. that whole research area is in contention, but in terms of just general mental effort, I would be hard pressed to find someone who never gets tired after thinking a lot. I mean, everybody experiences that to some degree, but one thing that, that you do find is, yeah, you find these individual differences in, how people 
perceive cognitive effort and how they modulate it. So like how they choose where to spend it and, and when not to spend it. Um, so there's this well-known scale that exists in the world called the need for cognition scale. And it's, it's uh, supposedly studying this thing about how people, it's making this assumption that some people actually prefer to spend cognitive effort. They enjoy difficult problems. They enjoy thinking hard about things. You can imagine like your friend who wakes up every morning and does Sudoku before playing a game of chess and then going to work at his super complicated job. And he just loves it. Um, and then there are some people who obviously really hate thinking hard and, and try to avoid it at all costs. Uh, and and so, so there are those individual differences. And one of the things that I've studied is, is how that type of effort modulation changes with age. Um, so how, say, older people, are they going to be more uh, frugal with their mental effort? Are they going to spend it more freely? Uh, and there's not like a clear-cut answer, I don't think, to that in the field. I mean, there's, there's evidence showing that older people, for example, um, see cognitive effort as more costly. But then there's also efforts showing that they're very willing to try and get answers right to questions, which in theory would require a lot of effort. Like they would slow down and try and like really focus in and get the right answer on the question. Is it that um, old people that, see the effort to be more costly or is it that it actually is more costly for older people? That's a, a tough so one thing in the field is, is, I guess, defining cognitive effort. I've sort of been speaking about it very broadly. Right. One of the ways that we look at it is behaviorally, which I think is the simplest way to relate to, to listeners. And so there are things like um, you, can you can give people two tasks that they have to choose over a period of time. So they'll choose it many times. And uh, you cannot tell them about what the tasks are explicitly but one is actually harder than the other. So, so you sort of have to choose between two different types of tasks. The, the rules are more or less the same, but one of them is a harder version than the other, but you don't tell people that. You just say, choose whichever task you want. You know, you, you, can, you, can, you just have to do this study and uh, you, you're gonna do this, this task a number of times, but each time you can choose uh, which one you prefer, even though we're not saying that one is harder than the other. Mm -hmm. And what you see is that in general, people prefer to choose the easier task over the hard one. They, they don't like uh, choosing the, they, they don't like exerting that extra mental effort. They're generally avoidant of that or averse to it, even though they're not told that it's harder. Just they have sort of two tasks that are sort of held on equal footing and then they just gravitate towards the easier one. Could you give me an example of one of these standardized questions where you can actually compare on some scale that one is objectively more difficult than the other? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, we have sanity checks, but one of the, the basic things that we might do is instead of like arithmetic or reading where, yeah, there's this, like, there's this big amount of variance between people um, based on like the environment or like how much time they learned math or whatever, we try to get at like basic cognitive processes. So something like task switching. So if you have um, sort of two rules in mind and you have to switch between them, it's harder than if they're consistent. So for example, if I say, uh, I'm going to show you a color, and then I'm going to show you um, a number. And if the color that came first was blue, you have to say whether the, the subsequent number is higher or lower than five. But if the color that came before is yellow, then you have to say whether that, color, that number is uh, even or odd that follows it. So the, the number stays the same. Uh, or the rules for the numbers stay the same, but depending on the cue that came before it, you have to do a different mental process. And um, 
one person might be good or bad at the specific mental processes, but switching between them is harder than if you just have to do one after the other of the same thing. Sure. So every time you see a number, you just have to say whether it's even or odd. That's easier than constantly switching between uh, this first process, which is determining what rule you have to use, whether it's even or odd or bigger or smaller than five. Um, and then also, uh, also actually doing that process as opposed to just doing that process in sequence. So we can manipulate uh, what's called the switch rate. So how often those rules switch. And in theory, the, the higher the switch rate, the harder the task is. And then we do sanity checks by looking at whether people make more mistakes or, or take longer on the, on, the, on the harder ones. And you should see that if the task is actually harder, they should obviously make more mistakes right. and have to think about it a longer time. Most people don't like thinking hard, but some people like the challenge. And um, that's sort of one of the things I'm sort of I'm going to hopefully be doing soon is studying when is it that you can get people to enjoy that challenge? When can you get people to enjoy spending that effort, or maybe not enjoy, but at least not be so biased towards the easiest one? How do you get people to spend that that effort? So it seems like there's I, I guess. Uh... One question that's been rolling around my head is in terms of decision making, it seems like there are specific kinds of decisions that we make that are conscious and specific kinds of decisions we make that are unconscious. Can we quantify yeah, that? I mean, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, I think. I think if I wanted to oversimplify, and I emphasize Please. this is an oversimplification, yes. um, one, thing, one thing you might look at is what benefits those things confer. So whether you're choosing a shirt, or whether you're wearing deodorant, um, they're very different things, but the, in theory, I mean, I think they're both sort of seeking some type of social reward. So, you know, you don't want people to, uh, to think you smell bad and make fun of you, that you don't want people to think you have a bad fashion sense. And so uh, you, you, do, you, you try and engage in an activity that you've learned over time will, will acquire you some reward. And in, the maybe not the nicest way of saying it but i guess from this perspective marriage is sort of the same thing where you you know you want to find a mate that you know when you're with them you've learned that it makes you happy and that you, you do things you enjoy doing and you know isn't giving you a bunch of negative feedback like they're always yelling at you or they're always being mean to you and so you, you choose the activity that uh, is gonna give you the most benefit over the long run now this is a huge simplification and obviously uh, there's probably a lot more that goes into it. I mean, just acquiring, you know, what is beneficial over what is not is a, is a, is a challenge, both scientifically and philosophically. Uh, but I think like at the most basic level about the way that sort of we understand where people's, where people's decisions are coming from and, and how they're choosing to do one thing over another is sort of in that framework where you're, you're trying to determine uh, the, the long run benefit of doing something or not. Perfect. I love that you've used the word benefit now multiple times because I'm going to ask you a question related to benefit. Uh, different kinds of decision making involve choosing a better option, right? Uh, what, will, what, will, what will yield the most positive outcome? How would you compare those kinds of decisions to ones where you're trying to minimize the negative outcome? Mm. Is there a difference there? Yeah, there is actually, that's a, that's a really good question and observation. So there's this well-known phenomenon in the field of decision-making called loss aversion, Yes. which okay. is just that uh, losses tend to loom larger than gains. So if you ask people to more or less like gamble money uh, on some of these lab tasks, um, what you'll see is that uh, the, if you stand to gain 
a certain amount, say $5, or you stand to lose a certain amount, also $5. So the, the net gain and loss is the same. People will uh, be more willing to take the, the gain risk than the loss risk. So they, they will try to um, minimize their losses rather than, uh, rather than maximize them, or that they'll be less risky right. in, their, in their decisions about losses. So people don't want to risk losing money, but they're willing to risk gaining money, right? And willing to risk not gaining money. Right. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So presumably the thinking is something like, well, you know, if I get it, then that's five extra dollars. If I don't get it, then I'm where I'm already at. But on the other hand, if I lose, then that's five dollars less than just being where I'm at. So presumably that's sort of the the mentality that goes into it. But yeah, there are differences in terms of losses and gains for how people make decisions, which is also really interesting. That's great. I, as I was asking the question, I, I really had no idea. Um, what the answer would be. And then when you mentioned loss aversion, I realized that I, it's very possible we've even spoken about this before, but I had heard the term. Um, so that's great. So yeah, feel free to uh, Google loss aversion if you'd like to learn more about loss aversion. I guess quick quick taking stock of the uh, different concepts we've spoken about so far, ego depletion, decision-making, loss aversion. Uh, anything else that uh, came Cognitive up? effort, but you'll, you'll get effort. to those <laughs> through any of, any of those, yeah. Exactly. It's all going to be related. Uh, one thing that I, I really liked that you mentioned or th that you were interested in researching um, was, was the, I guess, the benefit or the desire for people to engage in the cognitive effort involved in like uh, making and appreciating jokes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was this was an idea that I had. Um, so maybe a listener will, will scoop it or something, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but, no, this is I mean, but, everyone likes to talk about comedy and jokes and humor. So let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just I was just thinking about uh, this at one point that, you know, uh, so so an assumption of like this cognitive effort stuff is like some things are harder to process than others. Right. Like some things require more thought than some other things, say, like watching passively watching a movie requires less thought than like doing hardcore arithmetic. Even though both are mental processes, you never turn your brain off. It's just that one requires more effort than another. Um, and I was thinking like, say someone tells you a joke. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about this research, but I, I vaguely remember hearing or reading something about how joke processing has to do with incongruity. So like something might be funny if like there's some incongruity mm -hmm. that's in the setup and then the punchline resolves that in some unexpected way or something. Um, and so I was like, well, in, in like this cognitive research, this incongruity stuff is, um, is usually seen as, as difficult. Like it's usually seen as effortful to resolve conflict as it's called. Uh, the famous task that measures this is like a Erickson flanker task where, where if uh, you have to judge a middle arrow that's pointing in one direction and all the arrows around it are pointing the opposite direction, it's harder to do that than if all the arrows are congruent, they're all pointing in the same direction. Um, and so I was, I was just curious at one point if anybody's done a study on this or if, if there's interest in, in doing it, if there is, hit me up, listeners. Um, uh, hashtag Kyle Christensen. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah, you had mentioned that, right? I met that, that, uh, that, that researcher at a conference and mentioned your question to him. And he said, uh, he was interested. I don't know if you ever reached out to Kyle Christensen. No, I haven't. I, if he's if he's listening, then I would love to, to talk to you, Kyle. But, I'll forward uh, yeah, this the, to him. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, the idea is. Uh, the, yeah, I'm just. I was just curious because 
you know, presumably incongruity is like a difficult thing to process. And, and I can sort of relate to that. You know, you, you, hear, a, you hear a joke um, and you're sort of like thinking like, oh, like what's like, what's going to be like funny about it? Or like when somebody says something unexpected, your, your brain takes a second to process it. Like if you watch like a stand-up com comedian, there's always like a short delay between the actual landing of the punchline and the laughter. Mm -hmm. I think that's because people have to process it. Right. And I, I would always, I was interested in that because um, there was this really, really cool paper that came out by um, Michael Inslick and, uh, and some other people um, called the effort paradox. And it was this idea that, uh, you know, I, all, all the stuff I've been saying so far is that cognitive effort is effortful. Like, but that was silly to say. Cognitive effort is aversive, <laughs> is what I was trying to say. Okay. Meaning that people don't like thinking hard. Um, and this is sort of like a, a, a tenant of a lot of the research that gets done. But he made the, I think he made the astute observation that actually sometimes people don't mind thinking hard. I mentioned Sudoku, you know, there's no like yeah. real reward to that. There's no real benefit to doing it. It's just like the challenge is what's fun, playing chess, climbing mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he cites um, that people, some, some people put higher value on building Ikea furniture when they built it themselves as opposed to uh, somebody else building it for them. Do you like, like building IKEA it. furniture, Sean? No, I hate building IKEA furniture, but really? some people might like it. Yeah, I despise it. <laughs> it's so long and uh, and brutal, and never really works on the first go. Interesting. Yeah, okay. but uh, yeah, and so I was thinking, well, this sort of fits in, right? Like maybe processing jokes is an effortful process, but one that we enjoy doing. Like it's actually fun to do, and, and like the processing is what's fun out of it well um, okay wait a second though so everything requires processing just listening to me talk right now not yeah. making jokes requires processing are you saying that that there's additional processing for jokes because Maybe. Of, because like so this actually is it's, it's very interesting this relates somewhat to what my thesis is going to be about which relates to um, ambiguity resolution but more in a linguistic sense than in a humor sense mm -hmm. um but yeah, basically processing is, is always happening at some level. And so um, there, there are incongruities, right? What I was going to say is that there are incongruities in normal speech or, or ambiguities in normal speech, not related to jokes at all. I guess my intuition would be that the processing cost would be the same, whether it's in the context of a joke or not. It's just resolving ambiguity has some kind of cost to it. Yeah, I think that that, I mean, I think that that's actually... An interesting take on it and i mean the fact that you're i'd be interested in reading your your thesis when it comes out because um presumably the assumption there is that resolving ambiguity it takes more processing than when a sentence is clear-cut or something right like i imagine mm -hmm. that's the the idea mm -hmm. and um from from that perspective then like yeah of course all processes just listening to you talk requires some amount of, of effort like i said your brain's never turned off uh, but I would be curious in knowing if, well, so as in my field, I'm interested in knowing when people are willing to spend that effort or not. So when people are willing to do that processing, you know, if, if given the option, like I was discussing earlier, people tend to default to simpler tasks where you don't have to do as much processing, but then you have an example like jokes, maybe where, uh, people pay money to go do that processing in theory, right? To laugh. Um, at a, at a stand-up show or, or whatever. Well, to say people are going to pay money to do processing makes it seem like you're a just like totally reducing <laughs> comedians to just like uh, like 
I don't know, vehicles for like producing cognitive effort, right? Obviously there's <laughs> a little bit more that goes down there. See, this is the trouble with becoming an academic. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. You're, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm also talking sort of out of turn because I, I didn't do this study. It was just an idea that I had that I was interested in, in thinking about just sure. like, I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of plausible if, if I'm being honest, just the idea that like, you know, like if, if you set up like a basic joke prior to the punchline, the setup, like you have to, you have to think about it a bit because if you if people were just like sort of pay, not paying any attention, then the joke wouldn't wouldn't be funny, right? There has to be some sort of setup where they've like processed it, they formed some expectation, and then that expectation is violated. They have to process that that expectation was violated, and then they they laugh. Um, I like that you brought expectation into it because expectation can be violated and is often violated in specific kinds of jokes. Um, like I guess uh, you would call them guarded path jokes, right? Lead you in one direction and then pop off into a different direction. But if you're in any context and you are not paying attention, you're going to be missing information regardless. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And, and, and what we see is, is that in a, in a lot of contexts, um, like attention is an, is an effortful process. And so the fact that like people are, they, that they go to these shows and that they listen to it and that they pay attention and then like they do it all so that they can get that payoff, maybe if you want to think of it that way, of processing the joke and laughing then i don't know i find that interesting whether it works or not whether it has anything i'm saying makes any sense i have no idea i just thought it was a cool idea because um yeah jokes are sometimes hard to process you know you have to follow like a long story i'm thinking of like norm mcdonald as, mm -hmm. as a comedian and he sure. tells these like six plus minute jokes where like the setup is five of those minutes and then the payoff is like one minute uh, or like 10 seconds. And so you have to fall, you have to listen that whole time and you're just like waiting right. and waiting and waiting and then it, it pops. So yeah, I don't know, just an interesting idea about how cognitive effort uh, as we study it might be a little bit disconnected from some of the applications that maybe we do in real life. Sure. In general, do we have ways to measure uh, like the positive feeling you get when you engage in cognitively effortful tasks? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, probably, probably something I don't have a good answer to off the top of my head. I mean, like I was saying earlier, one way we might do this is by just asking people, you know, to choose between a hard and an easy one. And in theory, they're going to choose the one that makes them feel better. I mean, that's like an assumption of, of the task. Um, we have ways of indexing, uh, like how effortful something is. So when one thing that people do is use pupillometry. So they measure the dilation of your pupil. And the, sure. the idea is the, the harder you're thinking, the more dilated your pupil will be. Uh, so that's, that's one way to do it. And then I'd also read some stuff, though I've never read anything that actually implemented it and I've never implemented it, is um, I think th there was a study that I'd read where somebody used facial feedback. So, so there's uh, these like specific muscles that people engage in their face when, they, when they're thinking hard and it's negative. So like there's a negative affect facial muscle, I guess it's like fur furling your brow or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so you might sort of do a mix of those two. You might take like the pupillometry and say, well, here, look, people are thinking harder, but there's no furling of the brow. So they're thinking hard, but having fun. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> so many degrees I, of separation, they're measuring the face because <laughs> that's related to some affect that's related to some task. Oof. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a good answer for you, but that, that's, that's an answer for you. Sure. No, it's okay. I, I don't expect um, like a, a full, full amazing answer, you know? Yes. 
you just finished your master's degree, but there's of course a lot uh, that you do not know. As you said at the beginning, the more you start to know, the more you realize that you don't know a lot of things. So my goal, I guess, is to kind of try and push the envelope a little bit, see if I can get you into a corner or you start to squirm. You did a good bit. job. You did a good job. Sure. Asking me about results of hypothetical studies I haven't run. <laughs> Absolutely. And focusing on research domains that you haven't explicitly focused on yourself. So that's, that's my trick. It's out. Um, this is this is a question, I guess, a slight like slight deviation from the conversation. Um, what I do want to get before you head out for sure is uh, how would you describe yourself as a person or as a student using three words, and are those words the same for both of those things? Jeez. Okay. Hmm. First word that comes to mind, let's say, as a person versus as a student, and are they the same? Hmm. Uh, I would say critical. Critical is a is a good first one. Okay. It's trying to be critical and, as both a person and a uh, scientist, I guess. Don't know what the How right so word I'm looking for is. So critical. How so? Critical, like uh, if you look at a picture of like a, a model on the front cover of a magazine, you go, oh, no, see, look how her quadricep muscles ties in <laughs> on the left side versus the right side. Not speaking from personal experience, but do you mean that kind of critical, like critical judgmental or critical as in critical thinking? Uh, pro probably a little bit of both, if I'm being honest and Honestly, psychoanalyzing myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think I think I've been in a, in a lot of situations where you know someone, you know, sometimes some people, someone says something, and it's just like they're just kind of speaking like out of turn, like they're just saying something to say it, and I'm I'm like I'm I guess it's a habit I should kick, but like it's I'm one of those people who'll be like, no, really, what do you mean by that? And then like they sort of get stuck in their own talking, and then I'm I'm the hated person at the dinner table. Um, <laughs> okay. And in terms of, of uh, in terms of, of my science career, I mean, I think I think I'm trying more and more as I'm thinking of you know doing this as a as a career to to be critical of the work that comes out and, and to like think harder about the practices that we do. Um, if I if I already used one plug, but I guess I'll do a little plug now too. As, as you know, I'm you know I uh, I edit for this this journal that's that's trying to emphasize uh, you know null findings and discussion with other fields. Um, Th things like uh, like a discussion between the philosophies, uh, philosophy of science and the humanities, and actual psychological and neuroscience uh, research. So, so, so I'm trying trying to trying to be critical in, in the workplace too. Okay, that that uh, journal, by the way, is a journal of trial and error. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. J O T. -E. Yeah, based out of Utrecht. Yeah, Jot. Jot. Okay, so critical. All right, and that that kind of crosses both. I think that makes sense. Critical does seem kind of like a like a central value, kind of like how you were saying before. Some people really like engaging in cognitive efforts, some people don't. I feel like that wouldn't necessarily change based on the domain that you're in, right? Exactly. Yeah, I guess I would use that as my second word. I don't know what the word would be for that, but like, uh, I I like thinking hard about things. I like thinking about problems. I've often found myself like doing little programming puzzles just for fun on a weekend or whatever. Sure. Hmm, what would the word be for that? Weirdo. Okay, weirdo. Yeah, we're geeky. Type this out. <laughs> weirdo, n nerdy, I guess. I'm so interested in the word nerd as like a word that has evolved so much in the last like 10 years. Growing up, yeah. nerd seemed like a huge dig and like a, like an insult. And now, nerd, maybe it's just by virtue of, of, of being in like an academic field where everyone's kind of a nerd, but 
it seems like nerds on like the global scale are now thought of more as like the people who make things run. People who like know, oh, yeah. know the things that I don't want to know uh, so that I can enjoy all of the things that I do. You know, people like yeah. software developers and whatnot. I think there was a, there was a culture shift to, you know, even like nerd in the sense of like comic book nerd with all the Marvel movies mm -hmm. that came out and whatnot sure. and those being suddenly cool. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's the, the era of the nerds nowadays. A little bit. I wonder what's coming next. Hopefully whatever comes next, it'll, it'll be outside. It'll be, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I didn't have a chance to ask you about, about how, uh, how the current thing is affecting your research, but you basically are kind of, I feel like you're in a bit of a lull at this point because you just finished your degree. Like, are, did you jump right back into things once you did your defense? Apart from any yes. edits you had to do? Like you're back in it? Yeah, yes is the short answer. Um, mm -hmm. I think I, I've taken a lot to, so I'm hoping to get this online study that we're working on mounted. Um, and uh, yeah, just try, trying to, to, like I said, be critical and think about things, maybe think about what, what other research we could do. Uh, some of the results from my thesis, we're working on turning them into a, a publication where we have like extra studies and some computational modeling in it. And uh, those results are, are I, I think, pretty interesting. And so like maybe even worth following up in, in different capacities. So um, yeah, try, trying to keep busy, you know, trying try not to, to get too sucked into the, the quarantine lull. Sure, okay, so you didn't like uh, give yourself a two to four month vacation after finishing your master's degree. No, oh, not at all. Something that anybody should do. I think there is something to be said about getting a, a momentum going uh, and then kind of continually riding that wave. Yeah, I think, I think it's been a bit of a blessing in disguise to, to have a lot of work during this, uh, this, this quarantine time. Like it keeps me busy and uh, you know, I, I, I live in like a small place and so I don't you know, have the benefits of like maybe a, a house or something or like get a lot of change. Like a lot of my days are spent like in my room entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so having a lot of work and being able to like think of other things than just being in my room is uh, right. You can transport yourself kind of out of that room mentally. Exactly. Exactly. What's what's just like uh, I guess maybe to offer to the listeners in because you know yes we're graduate students but we were undergraduate students very recently and honestly there's like I said it's not a hard line you just cross over you're the same person you know once September eighth after Labor Day starts you're not just a different person when you start your graduate degree like what are some some best practices that you can maybe hand down to the people who are listening now in terms of maintaining a healthy work life balance it's kind of a buzzword work-life balance what do you do to uh, kind of stay sane if you're truthfully in your room all day long i feel like that's uh that's kind of sounds nightmarish yeah uh geez i'm probably the worst person to ask for a work-life balance um, uh -oh. but but i guess i guess i would just say and this is maybe the most cliche advice you could possibly give right um but i would guess i would say to find something that you like or that you find interesting so a lot of the work that i do I actually kind of enjoy doing it uh, and I, I don't always see it as work. So there's, there's something gratifying for me and say, like, I quite like doing, uh, you know, like if you have some data and you can mess around with it and, and do stats on it and stuff and, and, and you're interested in it, like I find that kind of fun and rewarding, but I'm also a nerd, like you pointed out. Um, so, but yeah, I think if you find something that you enjoy doing, then like the work doesn't seem so bad and you, you can probably be more productive take your mind off of the quarantine. But at the end of the day, if, if you're just talking about a general work-life balance then just like put things away, you know, like just close everything and go outside for a little bit. It'll still be there when you get back and there's 
there's a, there's a bit of a rat race. I don't know if you feel it too in like graduate school and, and I guess like higher education in general to like get lots of publications out, like always be doing something, be having your name out there. Yeah. And like that, yeah, I guess that can be important. But at the end of the day, like what, what's the end goal, right? If you're not ha living a life that you actually kind of enjoy where you, the work you're doing is important and, and, you're, um, and, and you're dedicated and you enjoy doing it, but if you, you so sacrifice everything else in your life for it, it's not, it's just not worth at the end of the day and you probably, and you, you might burn out in the long run. So I guess find something you like and don't be afraid to take a break. Very cliche advice. Sure. That's like, you know, cliche is cliche for a reason, but um, what would you tell to somebody who's already kind of on a path? So I guess there's two kinds of people who that doesn't really apply to people who uh, are currently doing a thing they don't enjoy and there's really not any way out. You know, you got one year left in your undergrad or you're doing PhD and like you're kind of losing interest. You got one year left and you know, like quitting now doesn't make sense. Or people who actually go into something like this for the express purpose of, uh, of, of getting a degree that will allow them to do something else afterwards. Mm. You know, mm. like what do you say well, to people? It's, it's great for you that you really enjoy what you're doing and that you can actually just get lost in your statistical analysis, which is great, amazing. <laughs> if, if I could bottle that, I could sell that for so much money, Sean, but I can't. So yeah, like, uh, you know, what would you tell somebody who's, who's maybe not that lucky? And again, this is not necessarily your personal experience, but. Right, right. Well, maybe I'll borrow a little bit from my field because the question is a little bit, if I rephrase it, it would be like, how do, you, um, how do you push that extra cognitive effort out of something you don't, don't like doing that you see no benefits from? And right. uh, there's some, some recent work suggests that, um, you know, progress is, a, is an important thing. And so maybe if you just keep, keep in mind, you know, what the end goal is and how close you are to that finish line. And, and that's really like at the forefront of your mind, maybe that'll motivate you a bit to, to, to push that, that last little bit through, you know, rather than think like of all the work you've already put in and, and, and uh, thinking at like the, thinking that like there's a lot of time left try and broaden your scope a little bit to think about how little time there actually is left relative to everything you've done and, and the rest of your life and getting close to that finish line can be a motivator sometimes. I like that. It's a good place to uh, wrap up just with, just so the listeners can kind of think about where they're at right now in their academic or any place in their career, wherever you're at, it's important to think about why you're there. Think about maybe the decision that led you to being where you are and uh, you know, understanding that at some point in time you felt that you were making the right decision probably some part of you right so try to channel back to the initial the initial condition for your decision um anyway this has been this has been really great i i would definitely like to have you back on at, at some point maybe once you started uh maybe when the fall comes around and you're back on a new uh research train or whatever happens. So we'll definitely keep in touch. Uh, any questions, any uh, final comments you'd like to impart? Listen. No, no, I, I really appreciate it. It was, it was really cool. And uh, I, I, I'm excited to hear more episodes. I'll, I'll, I'm definitely going to be a fan. And um, yeah, I, I, I hope you're doing okay out there in the, the quiet land of indoors. Yeah, I mean, this podcast is basically just like, a, just an idea, uh, just something to keep keep me busy in addition to the other things that I tried to keep myself busy with. I'm currently going through a bit of a transitional like productivity kind of uh, change where I'm re, re, rejigging my own schedule 
to prioritize the things that should be prioritized. So this is just, uh, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the expression, if, if you need to get something done, give it to a busy person. <laughs> so I try and keep myself as busy as possible so that uh, the things that need to get done just automatically do. And so that obviously only works when you prioritize correctly. You can do a lot of things that uh, should not be at the forefront of your schedule. And so, of course, we all have changes to make. Anyway, thanks again. Uh, the guest today was Sean Devine. You can find him on uh, what social media platform can we find you on, Sean? None, really. I, I need to step up my social media game. No, you don't need to step uh, anything up. Uh, you, can, you can add me on Facebook if i know who you are <laughs> okay sure go for it if uh if sean knows who you are and you're not already friends on facebook then you can hit him up on facebook and until he gets instagram i guess you'll be unreachable on that and other platforms so good for you for abstaining for the most part <laughs> from social media good for you yeah yeah try to try to take it not too seriously and i guess uh if somebody has a, a more specific inquiry you can reach me by email and uh, give jeremy my permission to just add the email to the description of of this um but you know even if you have a joke you know if you have a funny joke send it by email too funny joke for sure yeah, yeah. If, if anybody has a funny joke definitely send it we'll get things going if we want to create some kind of back and forth with sean we can do that so uh, that's it for today i will catch you all in the next episode take it easy Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.